All right, welcome everybody to Crosspoint. You guys can have a seat. Uh, my name is Matt. I am the uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Crosspoint Ventura, and I'm so excited that you guys are here on Independence Day weekend. Um, happy 243rd birthday, America! Like this is a it's a fun time for us. Um, also, let's let's hear it for our, our our women's soccer team today, winning the World Cup. Man, amazing! Um, so great. So hey, let me uh, let me jump right into this. Um, you know, I've heard it said that you can tell a lot about somebody based on their computer's desktop, okay? Like, you can learn a lot, like, about whether it's organized or not. So, because I don't want you to think too highly of me, I want to show you mine. This is, this is my computer desktop. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's about the same amount of care and attention as a seven-year-old gives that, that space under his bed, right? You know, just like, I'll throw it under so I don't upset mother. Like, that's how, that's how I, that's the same intentionality I give to my desktop, apparently. But... Before you judge me too much, um, you should see the rest of my office. It is not much better. I'm sorry about that. Mom, I'm sorry. Um, but really, before you start judging me, I need to, throw, I need to show you three pictures, and uh, I think it might change the narrative for you. Okay, so uh, let me show you this first picture right here. Um, this is Albert Einstein's desk. Okay, if that's not proof enough for you, let me, let me show you this one. This is Mark Twain's desk. It's not much better. Let me show you the third one. Steve Jobs' desk. This is undeniable proof. Geniuses have cluttered workstations. Okay? So, you know, don't, you know, I'm just, I'm just stating the facts. That's, that's how this works. So, um, for those of you who have a messy workspace like me, um, welcome. You're in good company. Um, so, but this is actually not even the full story. So this is only half of it. Because if you, look at the, if you were to look at the rest of my computer, uh, it doesn't look anything like that. Uh, and that's because a few years back, I realized I had a problem. That my lack of organization, my, my poor labeling of my files was like killing my productivity. And uh, maybe you can relate to this. But I had, I, I had like one folder on my computer. It was called Documents. And anything and everything that I've ever created was just like dropped in this one folder called documents. Um, and so I realized after a while, like, that's a problem. I need to have a better system. So I created two more folders. One that was called, wait for it, documents old. And one that was called documents new, which was just a holding place for documents that didn't realize that they were old yet. Okay, like that's... Um, and then I'm like, oh, it's still not enough. So I created another folder called in progress. But I completely forgot about that one, and I started a fourth folder called Working On. Um, and if you were to like go into the folders, it wouldn't be much better because I had, a, like I said, I had a labeling problem. So some of my files were um, just like these single word entries that you would have no idea what that means. It's like you know, retired. What is this? What is this? Like I don't. What, what have I ever written anything about being retired? Like I, I don't even know where this came from. Um, some of my files were just like the first four words, the first sentence on the document which also didn't tell you anything. Um, and then I had like 50 untitleds. Um, I don't know if anybody relates to this. Just like, just 50 documents of just untitled one, untitled two, untitled three. And I realized I, I had a labeling problem. So what I did is I, I looked at this and I did some research and I ended up kind of revamping my entire system for organizing and labeling inside my computer to where now all of my files, they, they follow the same exact sequence where it's the date first, the folder that sits in second, and then the third thing is a very descriptive uh, title for, for the document. And that's what I've done to try and just kind of rework my workstation so that I don't lose that productivity. I can be efficient. And here's something I had to learn the hard way that some of you have known all of your life. 
Because God has hard, hardwired you in a way uh, to understand this. But, but labels, they keep things neat and organized. They save you time and they allow you to make decisions quickly. Right? Like, this is, this is what the whole labeling process is all about. Um, I've always felt like there's, there's just two types of people in this world. Because, like, there's people like me that look at a store like the container store, and we wonder, how could they ever possibly, like, do enough business to stay open? Like, that's, that's me. But some of you are terrified to walk into the container store because you're like, I'm going to need a second mortgage to pay for all of the, like, organizing equipment that I, that I need. Like, some of you already understand this. You understand labeling. It, it saves you time. It makes decision-making easier. It keeps things neat and organized. Have you ever thought about, like, you're alive today because of food labels? Have you ever, like, thought about this? I mean, imagine for a second. You just walk to your pantry. Hey, there's some powder in here. Is it, is it, like, laundry detergent or is it pancake mix? I don't know. And then some of you are thinking, oh, I'll just use my nose. Like, that's how I'll tell the difference. Well, how do you know if that turkey is still good or if it's just that really gross turkey smell that it always has whenever you open it? You know what I'm talking about. I eat turkey sandwiches all the time, and that smell is awful. And, like, I wonder, like, why do I even eat this? Uh, but you're alive today because somebody said we should label our food. We put on there what's in it. We put, we put on there, like, when it expires. It keeps things neat and organized. It makes decision-making easier and quicker for you. You get this. Labels. They're miracle workers. They do a lot for you. But there's another side of labeling as well. I want you to think about the last time that you had to go and fill out an application of some kind. Maybe it was at the DMV. Maybe it was applying for a job. Maybe it was nine years ago when the last time you were taking the census. Maybe filling out an application for an apartment or a home loan. What you do is you, you write your name down on, on, a, on the piece of paper. And next to that line, there's, there's several boxes. Um, and based on these boxes, what they're going to do is they're going to neatly organize you. And they're going to save some time making decisions that, that affect you. Right? What they're doing is they're, they're slapping some labels. And some of these boxes, they're, they're pretty straightforward. It's things like your age, your gender, your height. But then you get to some other boxes and some other labels that uh, they seem pretty personal. You might get a question like, how much money do you make? And by the way, we don't really believe you, so we need three pay stubs just to prove that. Okay? You might get another question on there of, why have you left your last few jobs? Also, we need your boss's name and their phone number because we're going to have to do some double checking on this. Have you ever been arrested? If so, what are the circumstances around that? What would you say are your greatest weaknesses? Like, these are the types of questions that show up on these applications. And, you know, the funny thing is, like, you wouldn't offer up this information on a first date. Uh, like, you would have to wait, like, several months to get to this good stuff. But these organizations are like, whoa, like, we want to know, we want to know immediately. And if you've ever missed out on a job, or maybe you've been rejected for a loan, or you didn't get the apartment, you might have this thought. I am labeled poorly. You might even ask yourself the question, like, what's so wrong with me that I've, that I've been labeled as less than someone else? And what most of us do is we start to attach our identity to the boxes next to our name. So when you think about yourself, and like, if somebody were to ask the question, how would you describe yourself, what labels do you start to share with them? You know, one of, the, one of the things that sometimes people do is they'll, they'll, they'll label theirself, themselves like, am I, am I single or am I married? I've given myself the married label. That's how I see myself. It's what I want people to know about me. You know, sometimes we try and label ourselves with, uh, 
with the income label. And here's the deal, like most of us have figured out, you can't just walk into a room and announce like how much money you make. So what you want to do is you want to announce your income by your clothes or the car that you drive. But you're still trying to label yourself for other people. You know, sometimes the way that we label ourselves is based on our age. We say, I'm, I'm old, so don't ask me to do anything. I just, that's just who I am, right? Um, Sometimes we label ourselves as, uh, it's like, you know, this or that type of situations. Am I, am I creative or am I, or am I non-creative? You know, maybe, maybe you've labeled yourself because of who you were in high school. That either you were the high school quarterback or you were the band geek, right? Maybe you've labeled yourself based on, hey, did I get into a highly rated university? Or was I waitlisted at the community college? Am I attractive? Or do I have a nice personality? Right? Like, these are, the, these are the labels that we start to put on ourselves, and we wear them around, and this is how we have identified ourselves, and this is the identity that we give ourselves. Now, here's the thing. You label yourself because you think it keeps you neat and organized. It makes your decision-making easier and faster. But we also label ourselves because we live in a system where we have no problem labeling other people. Right? Like, what we do is we give them labels, we keep them neat and organized, and it makes decision-making quicker and easier whenever we deal with them. And what we also don't realize is that the labels that we wear, the ones that we, that we put on our chest for everybody else to know, the things that, de- that define our identity, they're either going to be the things that lock you down, or they will be the things that free you up. The labels that you wear will either be the things that lock you down or they will be the things that free you up. Okay, I want to tell you a story this morning and let me set the scene for you. Nearly two million people have just escaped in the middle of the night. And just so you know, their escape is not secret. The entire nation is aware of it, but they're so deep in grief at this moment that, that they're not, that this isn't even the first thing on their mind. See, an event unlike anything the world has ever experienced has just happened. Every house in the country that didn't participate in this seemingly weird and superstitious religious ceremony that involves animal sacrifice and painting has had their firstborn child die on the same exact night at the same exact time. And the Hebrew slave people who have been living inside your country for the last 400 years, they're taking credit for it. Or seemingly they're giving credit to, to their God. And it just looks like on the surface that they are correct. Because none of their children have died. And their thought is just like what our thought would be. Nobody needs this type of power sitting idly inside their country. That you need to rid yourself of whatever that is there. So Pharaoh, the king, has said the Hebrew slaves have been released. And so now they're packing everything up and they're making their way into the desert. That is, of course, until somebody from Egypt's central bank goes to the pharaoh and says, you do realize that this is going to sink our economy, right? And suddenly, that emotion of grief is replaced with a new emotion, rage. And it fills the very pit of his stomach. And so with the Egyptian military in tow, they start racing towards the Hebrew people. Now, word gets to the Hebrews, but it's too late. They're stuck. They're sitting right now on the banks of the Red Sea. They can't go north. They can't go south. They can't go west. They're stuck. And then we get this in the book of Exodus in the 14th chapter. 
Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making their chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And when all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the sea again. Then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea and the water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered all the chariots, charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh, all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea. Not a single one survived. And if I were just to say the name Moses to you this morning, most of you are thinking back to this moment. This is how most people remember a story. Like we even get these Hollywood epics about this. And it always culminates in this moment where Moses stands on the banks of the Red Sea. He lifts his staff up the waters part. All of the Israelites cross over on dry ground. He frees two million people from their bondage. He's part of the process. But you know, it might be a miracle of equal proportion. The fact that the Israelites ever listened to him to begin with. It might even be as big of a miracle that he was ever, evil, was ever able to even be used by a perfect and a holy God. But I guess when you, when you part an ocean and you save a couple million people, I guess it, I guess it happens to redefine your identity, right? It, it kind of changes the narrative about you. But if you were to actually look at Moses in a story, he was labeled poorly. Here are Moses' labels, and here's the story that got him there. You know, his, his earliest memories were probably walking through the palace of Egypt. And although he was adopted, he, he grew up as a royal, walking in Pharaoh's palace. Pharaoh would have been his, a grandpa, adopted, but still his grandpa. But whether it was communicated to him early in life or something that was revealed to him later in age, we don't know this. At some point, he pieces it together that, that I'm not like my brothers and sisters. I am not like the other people in this home. I'm different. And what he finds out is that he was born a Hebrew slave child. I'm sure that the thoughts started to rush to his head. Who am I? Am I second class? These become probably all-consuming thoughts for him. And then one day he decides, I'm going to go down and see these people I share ancestors with. I'm going to see what their life is like. And as he gets down there, he sees something that's unthinkable. He sees an Egyptian beating one of these Hebrew slaves. And with every hit, he doesn't see a stranger. He sees a relative. He sees somebody that he shares family with. He sees himself. And so bravery mixed with stupidity kind of join forces and he goes and he confronts this Egyptian and their argument leads to blows until eventually Moses earns a new label, murderer. And despite his efforts to conceal the body, word finally gets back that 
that Moses has killed this man and he has hidden the body. And Pharaoh hears this and he becomes enraged. So he says, Moses has to die. So Moses goes on the run and he earns a new label that day. The label of fugitive. From the lap of luxury to obscurity in the desert, now as a shepherd, now Moses believes that his new labels eclipse anything that God may ever have put inside of him. And then one day, we get this. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to the Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Understand this for a second. God visibly and audibly appears to him, and he tells him, Moses, I have picked you to lead my people out of bondage. I have, I have picked you, and I'm putting a new label on you, chosen for a purpose. But you know, here's the funny thing, is that Moses' response when he hears this is not like, man, thank you so much for picking me. I'm ready. His first response was, no, 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 you don't understand. I actually, I have, I have, a, different, I have a different label that I also wear. It's, it's the label of stutterer. I, I, can't, I can't really talk. And, you know, because of this one, I'm sure that there were other labels that he had to wear because of it. The label of stupid, the label of less than, the label of worthless. I mean, imagine a life before people understand speech impediments, trying to reason with people that you're, that you're not second class. I'm sure that there were all sorts of other labels that Moses wore because of this. But here's the biggest thing of this. God has now visibly and audibly appeared to him. But the weight and the size of his labels were so great that not even God's voice would ease his fears. However, because God is patient, because God is not caught off guard by Moses bringing all these different labels to him, he takes Moses on a process where he helps him untangle years of supposed identity. What we know is that God actually ended up using Moses to free the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Moses watched God part the Red Seas. Um, God uses Moses to the point of leading him into the wilderness. He meets with him. He hands him what's called the Ten Commandments. Moses leads the children of Israel through bondage into the wilderness. He's the one who brings water from a rock. He's the one who helps facilitate manna from heaven. God uses Moses. And here's what's important to understand. Moses wasn't picked by God because of his labels. He was picked by God in spite of his labels. There's this incredible verse that I want us all to look at. It's actually in the New Testament. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you open your Bible to the middle, start going to the right, you're eventually going to get there. Um, 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, the 27th verse says this. Instead, God chose things that the world considers. I'm going I'm to do a little edit here. God chose the things that the world has labeled foolish in order to shame those that they have labeled as wise. And he has chosen the things that the world has labeled powerless to shame those who have been labeled powerful. And here's the deal. The guy who wrote this, he should know. 
he was also given a lot of labels. See, early in his life, Saul of Tarsus, he had the Midas touch. Everything he touched turned to gold. He had the label of intelligent. He came from a privileged family. He had the, he had the label of Roman citizen, which was a big deal in that day and age. He was able to go to one of the highest places of education. It would be the equivalent of going to Harvard. And he was given the label of credentialed. He was picked at an early age to be part of the Jewish religious ruling court called the Sanhedrin. He got a new title, a new label that day. Successful. And just imagine for a second that you're Saul of Tarsus. Everything you have has been from you pouring every label, every advantage, every ounce of energy that you possess into a system that has rewarded him for the labels that he wears. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, this group of uneducated religious rebels, they are flipping this upside down, that they are challenging the status quo. See, because when Jesus hit the scene a little bit before this, he didn't invite people like Saul into his inner circle. He invited people that were labeled differently. In fact, he, he actually even took it a step further, is that whenever people who were labeled correctly would challenge Jesus, he seemingly berated them for them withholding and holding up the system that rewarded their labels and did not reward those who didn't have them. And what happens, this movement, it starts to gain steam. And it starts expanding beyond this inner circle and into the masses. And rather than letting everything he helped build with his entire life just whittle down to nothing, Saul says, I'm going to stop this in his tracks. And Saul devoted himself to trying to stamp out and stop the church, stop Jesus' followers. He contributed to the murder and the imprisonment of potentially hundreds of Jesus' followers. And in those communities, the communities of the church, Jesus' followers, Saul was not intelligent. He wasn't, he wasn't credentialed. He wasn't successful. He had new labels. He had the label of, label of evil, malicious, cruel, vindictive, self-righteous. In fact, so much so that Jesus encounters Saul on the road to Damascus. And he tells Saul, I'm going to send you to the city of Damascus and you're going to be met by this man named Ananias who is a follower of Jesus. And at the same exact time, Jesus is actually appearing to Ananias in a dream. And Jesus tells Ananias in a dream, he's, he's hearing from God in this moment. Like, don't let this, don't let this slip away. He is visibly and audibly hearing from God. And Jesus tells him, I want you to receive Saul. And Ananias' response was, Jesus, have you seen how he's labeled? The weight and the size of his labels that were, were so great that when God tells Ananias in a dream, I want you to receive Saul, his response is, really? Him? And here's what's important to understand. Saul wasn't picked by God because of his labels. He was picked by God in spite of his labels. And it's one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit inspired Saul whose name would end up becoming Paul. Jesus even relabeled him. He wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. 
This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. New creation. Let me put this in different terms. Jesus has and is in the process of relabeling you. See, here's what you do. Here's what I do. This is what human nature does. We naturally evaluate people, and what we do is we look at the labels that we see on their chest, and we either lock them down because of it, or we free them up. So what we do is we look at somebody and say, wow, wealthy, intelligent, attractive, I care what you think. And then when somebody looks at us and we're like, you're annoying, you're different, you're a failure, nothing you say will change my mind. Right? This is, this is how we evaluate people. We look at the labels on their chest and we react accordingly. And what we do is we say, that's how I evaluate people. So I assume that God also evaluates and sees me the exact same way. That we believe that God is labeling us. He's saying, murderer. He's saying, malicious. He's saying, selfish. He's saying, stingy. Unloving. Adulterer addict. We think that God is giving us these labels. But unfortunately for that theory, there's another label that he gives us. It's the label that says, belongs to Christ. And that label that says, belongs to Christ, it supersedes any other label that we have. See, when we put the label of belongs to Christ on our chest, it completely redefines our identity. And the weight and the size of this label is so great that no other label can carry any other power over our identity. And know what you're thinking right now, yeah, but like that's pretty simplistic because like what we do is we we say, you know, I, I, I do belong to Christ, but I'm also all these other things. So like I get where you're coming from, like that that kind of makes sense, but but that's just, like, that's just part of the mix. That's part of my identity, but it doesn't supersede anything else. Now, here's the deal. You actually believe this. You do believe that some labels are so great, that they're so weighty, that they change everything about somebody's identity. You believe this. You just don't believe this about this. You just don't believe that it's true about you. You just don't believe it's true about what God does. And here's how I'm going to illustrate this for you. Uh, I do this thing, and uh, it, it's called radical mentoring. And here's, here's the first assignment we do with radical mentoring is that we give an assignment, and the assignment is you have to go and write your obituary. Don't worry, it's not as morbid as it sounds, okay? Um, what you do is you have to go away, and you have to try and write out three or four sentences that identify and define what you want to be remembered for. Okay, it's like when you die, what is your obituary going to say about you? Have you ever wondered, like, what are the three to four sentences going to say about me? It's a good, it's a good thing to just try out once. But, but just bear with me for a second. What if I were to read to you the following obituary? After a few wild years as a young man, including a DUI, he finally settled down and he married a librarian, had twin daughters, and made a small fortune in oil. You know, some of these details may be included in this man's obituary, but they're going to be the smaller ones. Why? Because there's another label, there's another detail that supersedes the rest. The first line of George W. Bush's biography will read, 43rd President of the United States. Okay, what if I were to read this obituary to you? He grew up in a broken home. He had to work through the complexities of being multiracial. His childhood was marked by transition, having lived in various states, cities, and countries before attending college in Los Angeles, New York, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. He wrote three books and was a lawyer and a community organizer. 
You know, this is not going to be how Barack Obama's obituary starts either. It will start off with the label 44th President of the United States. All-state wide receiver in high school. He donated several million to charities, including opening a charter school in his hometown. That won't be the label that fits on the first line of LeBron James's biography either, or obituary. It's going to say LeBron James, NBA champion for three different franchises, which means that this Laker experiment is going to work, okay? I can dream, right? Like, I can dream about this. But sometimes our labels aren't positive either. Heisman Trophy winning running back at USC, all-pro NFL player, successful pitchman and actor. Unfortunately, those labels won't be on the first sentence of O.J. Simpson's by, uh, obituary either. Right? Here's the thing. Some labels are so incredible, they're so heavy, they're so powerful, that they eclipse any other label that sits on our chest. Belongs to Christ is one of those labels that no other part of our identity will supersede it. No other part of who we are will be the first line in our, our obituary. It supersedes all others. The labels that we wear and define our identities, they'll either be the things that lock us up or they will be the things that free us up. And the label that says belongs to Christ, it supersedes any other label that we try to put on ourselves and should completely re-identify our identities. And I want to try something that's going to be a little different for us. Um, when you came in and you received a program, in the middle of that program, there should be a sticky note just like this. I believe that some of you, you have a label that you put on your chest. And it doesn't free you up. You feel like it locks you down. You feel like that you can't ever actually be the person that God has designed you to be because you will always wear this label of, of either addict or you're going to wear this label of failure. You're going to wear this label of from a broken home. Like, I don't know what label you think defines you, but some of you have worn it on your chest and you are not allowing God to completely relabel you and free you up. And so this morning, I want to do something different. I want you to pull that out right now. I want you to grab your pen. And this is just between you and your piece of paper. I want you to write down what is your label on that sticky note. And then just a moment, if you feel led, I want you to come, I want you to wad it up, and I want you to throw it in this trash can. Let it be a symbol. God does not define you this way. He doesn't see you the way the rest of the world sees you. He has completely relabeled you. He has redefined who you are. And let me remind you as well, and this is something I don't think that we should, we should allow to get overlooked. That whole verse up here on 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. This is not written from God's perspective. This is written from our perspective. That is also part of our responsibility as Jesus followers that we don't define other people based on the labels on their chest as well. If they are a follower of Jesus, they've been given a new identity, they're a new creation, and we do not hold their labels against them. If God has redefined you, and if God has redefined us, who are we to try and slap those labels back on you? And so, in just a moment, the band's going to come back up. And I'm going to ask that if you feel led, just make your way down to the front. Throw your label away. This is just between you and God. If one person does it, that's great. If three people do it, that's awesome. If every single one of you do it. 
It's just a symbol that God is freeing you up with your labeling. So this time, I want to invite our ushers to the front. I want to invite you to pull out your connection cards. And I want to invite the band to the front as well. I believe that no matter, no matter who you are, where you came from, what you're doing, God wants to relabel you. He wants to redefine you. And it all starts when we take next steps. The next steps we have on the back of our connection card today is I'm asking Jesus to forgive me my sins and take full control of my life for the very first time. Maybe you feel like your next step today is I'm going to write out my three sentence obituary. I want to see what I'm going to be remembered for. Or maybe I'm going to invite three friends to our At The Movie series and you can pick up some more invite cards on your way out today. But my challenge to you, Crosspoint, is in a moment when we start to sing, let go. Allow God to relabel you. Allow God to redefine who you are. You are not what the rest of the world says you are. You are who God says you are. So you would join me in prayer. God, thank you just for relabeling us. God, thank you for taking our labels that have held us down for years and putting them to death on the cross. God, I pray that we would be willing and we would allow you to completely redefine and relabel us. God, I know that you are in the process of doing something incredible in the hearts and the minds of the people here at Crosspoint. God, I know that, that you are willing to do something that is way beyond anything we can ask, think, or imagine. But one of our biggest obstacles is ourselves. The God, that we're too busy getting in our own way. That we define ourselves based on things that you have not defined us as. Maybe it's, maybe it's the thing that's held us down. Maybe it's the thing that we've always felt like has lifted us up. But God, we haven't allowed belongs to Christ to be our identity. And so God, I pray that you would forgive us of that, that you would change our minds, and that we would adjust accordingly. God, I pray that this morning, we wouldn't miss it. That we'd be locked in. That we'd be listening to your Holy Spirit. That you would change the way we think. You would change the way we even see ourselves. And the God that we would accept that new label belongs to Christ. So I praise all your son Jesus' name.